Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Bibles in hand and open to the fourth chapter of the book of John. As you turn, I want you to think of the great contrast between Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the woman at the well here in chapter 4. One was a man, the other was a woman. One was a Jew, the other was a Samaritan. One was a respected ruler, the other was a social outcast. The one was seen by the people of his day as a moral man. The other was seen by the people of the day as an immoral woman. Nicodemus was seen as a powerful man who had been theologically trained. The woman at the well was despised and not educated in the scriptures. But despite all the differences, one thing united them. They both needed Jesus Christ. Take a look at our text with me. John chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Zach Mayo, a Marine who is stationed aboard the U.S. aircraft carrier USS America. At the time, the USS America was stationed in the Indian Ocean. Zach was having trouble sleeping after a hearty Thanksgiving meal. So at 3 a.m., he strolled out on the catwalk, six stories above the dark water, to get some fresh air. Minutes later, a heavy steel door that he had forgotten to shut, it swung open as the huge ship turned, flinging him over the rails into the ocean water below. He said later, I tried to keep my cool, and I had plenty of time to pray, pray, pray. After he fell in, he yelled for help and watched the ship's lights move further and further away. That has to be a desperate feeling. 
He took off his coveralls, tied the leg and armholes together, filled them with air, and used it as a life preserver. But here was the problem. He had to fill them with air every two to three minutes to keep them filled. He'd fall asleep and wake up and they'd be out of air. When he finally was noted as missing at roll call, ships and aircraft were sent back to look for him. But they couldn't find him. Here's what amazed me the most as I read this story. Some 55 people a year fall overboard from Navy ships every single year. But the majority of them are seen as they go overboard and are rescued. But when no one sees you go over, the odds of living are low. About four people a year do not survive. Mayo said the scariest time was at night because that is when sea creatures came in. And on the first night, the swells were about four to five feet high. The fish nipped at his fingers, his toes, legs, arms, and even his face. He couldn't see them, and he couldn't waste the energy trying to swim away. He said it felt like when a snake touches you, and then he asked God for his protection. During the first day, he was visited by a large sea turtle, and then a shark about four feet long. It circled him. It bothered him because he thought, quote, if there's a little one, where's the big one? And then he said, it's really hard going from the top of the food chain to the bottom. On the second night, the swells reached eight feet high. He found himself underwater at times, taking in the salt water while he was trying to get air. He drifted in and out of sleep, consciousness, and after about 30 hours, he just got exhausted and his body shut down. He had dreams of being rescued. He dreamt of seeing his folks back in the States. But when he'd come to, he'd be right back in the water. 36 hours after he was tossed overboard, delirious, in a state of exhaustion, Pakistani fishermen stumbled upon him. They untied their head wraps, tied them around his arms and legs, and hauled him into the boat. He collapsed on the deck. His legs and arms were stiff from kicking the entire time to stay warm. 36 hours without water that he could drink. His tongue was dry, cracked, and his throat was parched. Have you ever had this type of thirst? The type of thirst when your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth and all you can think about is water. Our Savior knew this thirst. He knew the limitations of the human body. He felt pain. He felt hunger. But he also knows the deeper thirst, the hunger of man for acceptance, love, and the need for us all to be at peace with God. Verse 1 again in your text. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Therefore, in verse 1, the connection goes back to the baptism ministry of Jesus in chapter 3. The ministry of Christ was now starting to overtake the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of our Lord in Judea had gotten the attention of the Pharisees. Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee. Remember, both John and Jesus came baptizing and speaking with authority. This was a direct affront to the religious establishment of the day. 
And as we said in our last study of John, this was early on in the ministry of Christ. This was the first year of his ministry. It was not yet the hour, the time in which he would head to the cross. It was time to head north again, to get out of the line of fire of the Pharisees. Jesus himself did not baptize. His disciples baptized for him. Why? If you were baptized directly by Christ, this could be a problem after the resurrection of Christ. The temptation would be to boast that you are baptized directly by the Savior. It could cause division in the church. Paul ran into this in Corinth. And you see this in 1 Corinthians 1. He told the church he was thankful. He only baptized a few. Lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Take a look at verse 4 here in John. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, looking at the map on our study guide, you can see the layout. Judea to the south, Samaria in the middle, and Galilee to the north. The most direct route from Judea went through Samaria up to Galilee. Common people would take this route, but the strict Jews would not, especially the Pharisees. Their hatred for the Samaritans would lead them to cross the Jordan River by Jericho, travel up the east bank of the Jordan River through mostly Gentile territory, and cross back to the west side of the river close to the Sea of Galilee. This was beyond hatred between the Jews and Samaritans. At times, it even got dangerous. Jewish travelers were attacked. They were beaten and robbed as they traveled through Samaria. And yes, if they took the long way by crossing the Jordan River, they came into contact with the Gentiles. But to the Jews, the Samaritans were even worse than the Gentiles. Going directly to the north was a three-day walk to Galilee. It was shorter. But it just seems to be that Jesus had an appointment to keep with the woman at the well. Remember, Samaria at this time had no separate political government. It was united with Judea, underneath the Roman rule. The history between the people is remarkable. At first, Samaria was just the name of the capital city of the northern tribes. Then it began to refer to the entire region of the northern kingdom. After the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722 BC, they deported 20,000 of the Israelites, especially those of the upper class, and settled the land with foreigners. Captives of other countries, people from Babylon and Syria. Second Kings chapter 17, it teaches us all about this. Those that came in from other nations married some of the Israelites who remained in the land. And they came up with their own version of the Hebrew faith because the foreign captives worshipped other gods. The Samaritans mixed this worship with the Hebrew faith. And when the remnant of the southern kingdom returned from captivity in 539 BC, they looked at the Samaritans as racial half-breeds whose worship of God had been tainted. The Jews would not let the Samaritans help rebuild the temple. After the Babylonian exile, the Jews that returned, there was a desire for purity in their faith. Ezra excluded the people of mixed backgrounds. This is found in Ezra 9 and 10. This included the Samaritans. About 400 BC, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans twisted both scripture and history. They believed that Mount Gerizim was the only place where God could truly be worshipped. They believed 
that Mount Gerizim was the place where Abraham offered Isaac, where Melchizedek met Abraham, and where Moses built his first altar after leading Israel out from Egyptian bondage. The Samaritans insisted that Mount Gerizim was the original Mount Moriah, and that this was the place that God had chosen instead of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. During the time of the Maccabees, the Samaritans actually dedicated their temple to the Greek god Zeus. Bitterness exploded into war, and this temple was destroyed towards the end of the second century BC by a ruler of Judea. And all of this just added more fuel to the fire towards the hatred between these two groups. At one time during the first century AD, roughly 20 years before the time of our passage in John chapter 4, it's recorded that the Samaritans became so aggressive that they came in secretly into Jerusalem at night. And when the gates of the temple in Jerusalem were opened, just after midnight, they scattered the bodies of dead men in the porches of the temple just to defile the temple. This led to another war for a time, and the Roman government actually had to step in. The Samaritans continued to develop their own teachings. They accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They made a few changes to it, and they did not accept the other Hebrew scriptures as the word of God. Even during the time of Jesus, even though their own temple had been destroyed, they still made their focus on Mount Gerizim. By the time of John chapter 4, the Samaritans numbered in the hundreds of thousands. And it may seem hard to believe, but there is still a small number of Samaritans that live there and follow the same worship of that of their ancestors even to this day. They still head up the slopes of the mount to perform all the rituals of their ancient temple. Traditions can have a powerful, powerful hold on people. But here in our text, Jesus could have taken the long route, but the disciples had a lesson to learn about the need of all men to drink from the well of eternal life. Pick up verses 5 and 6 again. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, if you're looking at the map on the study guide, you can see Sychar and Mount Gerizim. It's just to the south. Sychar was one of those little walled villages that were scattered throughout the land. The Apostle John teaches us that this was near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. The reference here is to both Genesis 33 and Genesis 48. Remember what happened. Jacob bought some land, and when the Israelites came into the promised land, they brought with them out of Egypt the bones of Joseph, and he was buried there, just a few hundred yards northwest of Jacob's well. Now, this is all recorded for us in Joshua 24. The site of Jacob's well, it's as certain as these things can be. At different times throughout history, there's been churches built there, but they've all been destroyed by the Muslims. Today, the well sits in the basement, the crypt of an Orthodox church that's never been finished. But what makes this well so reliable over the thousands of years is that it was not only a well that had been dug out from above, but it's also fed by an underground spring. This was a deep well, and the water is still pure to drink. The well itself is seven and a half feet in diameter. The top 10 feet have solid masonry, and below that, it was actually cut through solid rock. Jesus arrived at the well, 
at about the sixth hour. Remember, this is counting from sunrise, according to the Jewish time. So we are talking about noon. This was the heat of the day. We would assume they had walked all morning. They had walked about 30 miles that day. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was tired. I love this text because in it we see both the human limitations of the man Jesus and the deity of Christ, his power, his sovereign knowledge. The Lord sat at the well waiting for a woman he knew would be coming. Verses 7 and 8 in your text. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It would seem that the woman came to the well alone. Women normally came in groups to fetch the water, and they normally came in the morning or later in the day when they could avoid the heat of the sun. It could be. The public shame of this woman was part of the reason that she went to get water alone. She was the type of woman that gave the people of the town all they needed to gossip about. I think she was probably a woman who had been beaten down by the morality of those who claimed to be righteous. John explains, the disciples had gone into the city to buy food, which means John heard the story later directly from Jesus himself. Most Jews would have been unwilling to eat any food that had been touched by Samaritans, and no Jewish rabbi would have sought to talk with a Samaritan woman, let alone drink from her cup. Jesus and his disciples demonstrated freedom in not bowing down to the religious traditions of men. He broke down the social barriers of men. Then think of these simple words, give me a drink. Yes, we are focused in on the humanity of Christ in this passage, but let us not forget the deity of Christ, the creator of the earth, the creator of life, was thirsty. Amazing. We'll learn in a minute that he didn't even have a bucket, so he asked for a drink. He could have commanded the water of the well to come up to him. But he didn't. He asked for a drink. Centuries before, he had brought water from the rock for Moses. But never once do we see that Jesus performed a miracle directly for himself. Remember, part of his redeeming mission was to taste life to the fullest. And a part of life, in human terms, it is to be thirsty, to be hungry. This is a perfect picture of the humanity of Christ. And Jesus wanted the focus to be on the living water that he alone could provide. Notice the reaction starting in verse 9. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. This, again, is another place where we need to understand the social ramifications of this text. This woman was startled that a Jew would even speak to a Samaritan, let alone ask for a drink. Jews and Samaritans would not even consider sharing the same utensils. Samaritans were considered unclean along with anything that they touched. Why would a Jew want to use her polluted bucket to get a drink? The rabbis of that day were even teaching that just to partake of the bread of a Samaritan was like eating pork. Even speaking to women at the time was considered to be a waste of time. Ladies, I'm just the messenger. 
But this is how bad it was. Men, even in private, didn't make a lot of effort to take time to talk with their own wives. One rabbi of that day said, quote, It's better that the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman. Jesus didn't agree with that prejudice. This type of arrogance was a rejection of God's beautiful plan of marriage. The Jews believed that all the Samaritan women were in a perpetual state of being unclean. You see, not only did the Jews avoid contact with the Samaritans, but Jewish men avoided speaking with women in public, even their own wives, their sisters, or their daughters. There were even Pharisees who were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they would shut their eyes when they saw a woman on the street, so they walked into walls and buildings. For a rabbi to be seen speaking to a woman in public, it was the end of his reputation. And yet, Jesus spoke to this woman. Not only was she a woman, not only was she a Samaritan, but she was a woman of notorious character. No decent man, let alone a rabbi, would be seen in her company, talking with her and asking her for a drink. They would rather go thirsty. Jewish rabbis wanted women to stay in their own place. Men certainly didn't want to discuss theological issues with them. The Jewish rabbis had the same arrogance that a lot of church leaders have today. You see, the rabbis thought that the common people, the people that worked with their hands, they were not smart enough not educated enough to discuss the scriptures, not educated enough to discuss the deeper issues of the faith. This was even more so when dealing with a woman, the common woman. She was on the low end of the social scale. But to make things worse, this woman was considered a half-breed, a dirty Samaritan. The Pharisees actually went so far as to pray that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. But Jesus spoke to her like a person. Jesus even wanted a drink from her. Notice the surprise of the woman. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She was not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. She couldn't fathom. What would possess a Jew to ask her for a drink? How incredible, how incredible it is that Jesus was at home talking with a man like Nicodemus talking with a woman like this, who had made a mess out of her life. We see this again in Matthew 9. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and sinners. When the Pharisees challenged him about it, the Lord responded, quote, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Then he told them, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. Take this statement in verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews did not use anything that was used for eating or drinking that Samaritans had used. Think of the situation. Not only had Jesus proved that he was above the prejudice of the Jewish people by talking with this woman at the well, by asking her for a drink, but now he offers her living water. If she would have understood who he was, If she would listen, she would hear that this was a gift of God. He was challenging her because she still thought of Jesus as a Jewish traveler, nothing more. The gift of God is a clear reference to the gift of eternal life that only the Lord can give. Jesus was offering living water. 
Understand at its most basic meaning, living water to the Jewish people was water that was fresh, that came from the springs. It wasn't water that was sitting stagnant. It was fresh water that brought life. Keep in mind how dry that land can be most of the year. This should make us think of Jeremiah 2.13. Listen to Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and honed themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Listen to that again. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and honed themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, the people had rejected the Lord. They had rejected the God who offers life, choosing instead the stagnant waters of the cisterns that they themselves had created. These were broken cisterns that could hold no water. In the land of Israel, the most reliable and refreshing sources of water were the natural springs. This was water that was dependable. This was water that was cool. It was refreshing. The most unreliable source of water were cisterns. Cisterns were basically just large pits that were dug into the rock and covered with plaster. These pits were used to gather rainwater. This water, of course, was not all that good. And if it failed to rain, well, the water would run out. But the picture in Jeremiah is of a cistern that had developed a crack. It would leak out water. The teaching was to turn from a dependable, pure stream of living water to the unreliable water of a cistern. This would be foolish. But that's exactly what the people of Judah had done when they had turned away from God by turning to idols. You see, the point is, don't miss this, as a Samaritan, only believing in the first five books of the Old Testament, while rejecting all the teaching of the prophets, she would not have understood the references that we see again and again, like this passage in Jeremiah, to the living water of Christ. Part of the problem that we see throughout the Gospels is that as Jesus spoke, too often the people would not connect his teaching to the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. The people often thought he was talking about the physical things of life before them when he was trying to point them to the eternal. And this was especially true for the Samaritans. Their rejection of part of the word of God affected their ability to understand the teaching of the Messiah. Jesus was there at this well, offering this woman living water, transforming life that comes by the Spirit of God. This is eternal life in the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. But she could not understand how this stranger could offer any water without a bucket, let alone living water, spring water. She missed the point. Water is the difference between life and death. And it is precisely that kind of difference that Jesus was telling this woman he could make in her life. Jesus tells us unbelievers can ask God to bring them the saving message of the gospel. Notice the response of this woman starting in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons? and his livestock. Here again we see this. Her lack of knowledge of the living water spoken of in the prophets, it made her think that Jesus was talking about the water 
of the spring that feeds the well. Remember, this was a deep well. It has a spring running into it. It has living water. Without a bucket, how is Jesus going to do this? Even the patriarch Jacob, who dug the well 2,000 years before the events of John 4, to get water, he first had to dig a well and use a bucket to get the water out of such a deep hole. If Jesus was offering fresh water without a bucket, it either meant he was greater than Jacob or that he was some cheap con man. And I think from the wording used in verse 12, it actually seems like this woman thought that Jesus was just this, some sort of con man. And so she asks the question, where do you get that living water? Best guess is that Jacob dug this well around the time of Genesis 33 when he moved into this land. But what does she do? She claimed Jacob as her ancestor. Jesus could have questioned this, but he didn't. He stayed on task, pointing her to her need of new life. Take a look at the response from Christ. Verses 13 and 14 record. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, what was Jesus doing here? He was trying to move the discussion. The water of the well could quench a man's physical thirst for a time, but it could never satisfy the thirst for eternal life. It could never satisfy the thirst of the need to be reconciled to God. The living water that Christ offers takes care of this thirst once and for all. This is the thirst for God, for eternal life, in the presence of God. This thirst is met by the pouring out of the Spirit of God. The water that this woman hauled day after day could only be received by hard work. But the living water that Christ offers is something that you receive by faith in Him. And it becomes a fountain of water that springs up into everlasting life. The Spirit of God gives life. This is about transformation. This is about doing away with the rituals of men and about the living water of the Spirit of God. And the fact that Jesus teaches that those who have this living water will never thirst again, this points to the security believers have in Christ. If you have redemption, you will never lose that salvation. You will never have that thirst again. And here we have in this chapter, not the faithful remnant of Israel, but the rejected and thirsty outcasts who are being drawn into the fold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And soon, these people would say down in verse 42, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The year was 1962 when George Wallace ran for governor of Alabama on a platform that was blatantly racist. He promised to fight integration, to fight the federal orders, to personally block the schoolhouse doors. He ended his inaugural address in 1963 with the infamous statement, I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. That summer, he refused to allow black students to register at the University of Alabama until forced to do so by the threat of military intervention. Throughout his tenure as governor and a run for the presidency in 1968, Wallace spouted his racial hatred, 
while blacks were beaten and jailed. Black churches were burned. Black children were murdered. He was a living example of building barriers and burning bridges to those we perceive as different from us. Then in May of 1972, while he was campaigning, Wallace was shot five times, leaving him paralyzed and in constant pain. Two years later, confined to a wheelchair, divorced from his second wife, with no use of his legs or even his own bodily functions, Wallace was a broken, pathetic figure. He understood suffering, and he had come to realize the suffering he had caused others. While being driven home one evening, he passed the open doors of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a black church where years before Martin Luther King Jr. had stood in the pulpit and denounced Wallace for his treatment of African Americans. Overcome with remorse, he had the car stop. He was helped into his wheelchair. He wheeled up the aisle to tearfully confess that he had been wrong. He apologized for the suffering he had caused and asked the blacks of Alabama to forgive him. This remorse he expressed a number of times in the following years, publicly before campuses, conventions, and privately to black leaders. During two more terms as governor, he built bridges to the black community and worked to undo some of the damage his own racist rhetoric had caused. Until the very end, while bedridden and deaf, he still met with groups of both races for prayer. Not everyone forgave Wallace. The damage he had done and the pain he had caused was great. But it took five bullets and horrific suffering to bring him to his knees. Once broken, he had the courage to face his hatred and his prejudice. If a man like George Wallace can overcome his hate, then there is hope. Jesus came and shattered the barriers of men, but still, racism continues. The very first church I pastored, our youth pastor and his wife were disowned by their parents, who were Baptists, said to be good Christians, just because Tony and his wife adopted some beautiful black children. Jesus came and shattered the barriers of men. But pride stands in the way of love. The sin nature gets in front of reconciliation. And so we see hatred, we see anger, and we see racism in the church. People need to understand that our world is filled with only two groups of people, sinners saved by grace and sinners in need of grace, nothing more. The blood of Christ can cleanse any man. It can cleanse any woman from sin. Believe it. Jesus himself testified, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Love is the answer. Grace is the answer. Faith is the answer. And life in Jesus Christ is the answer. Follow his example, willing to reach across the boundaries of men, willing to love those that need redemption, no matter what they look like, no matter what they've done, always pointing people to the living water of Jesus Christ. We often get asked for more information on the end times. Well, the good news is that we wrote a book titled What Lies Ahead, which is an overview from the Bible of the end times. You can find it on Amazon, and you can find all the different formats it's offered in 
on our website, returntotheword.com. That book again is What Lies Ahead. If you've read it, please leave us a review on Amazon because it helps us to tell others about this wonderful resource for studying about God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.